I have some really great news. So our second child, a super cute baby girl, was born this last week. And, you know, mother, baby are doing great. And I am incredibly happy to finally meet my precious, adorable little girl. So what's interesting is when we actually mentioned to the nurses in the hospital, because we had it here in Shanghai, China, that we were having a baby girl and they found out we had a three-year-old boy, they all got really excited and they explained to us that in Mandarin, when you actually put the character for boy beside the character for girl, it makes the word ha, which means good. So they got all excited because having a girl and having a boy is like a really good thing in China. And I would absolutely agree with them. We have a fantastic three-year-old and now a super cute baby girl. And it's very good or fei chang hao, as they say in Chinese. How does our definition of success shape how we live our daily lives? Join me, your host, Michael Bauman, as we create a life of success by exploring the cutting-edge research in happiness, motivation, psychology, philosophy, and more. Welcome to Thrive Culture Success Engineering. So this is the second part of our two-part series on Daring Greatly by Brene Brown. Phenomenal book. Like I said, I highlighted pretty much every other sentence of it. It's very, very good, full of wisdom. So back to our pursuit. When we're talking about a pursuit of authenticity, it's important to recognize and become aware actually of the armor and the shields and the weapons and stuff that we've constructed to protect ourselves from the discomfort we feel when we're vulnerable and that ultimately keeps us from being truly known. Now, all of these fears, lies, you know, uncertainties and stuff lie on a spectrum between them and vulnerability. So it's not really like an either or situation. It's more like, you know, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. And then they, these might even vary by situation or within interactions with different people too. So it's really crucial as we take this journey towards, you know, presenting our authentic self to just celebrate any progress, no matter how small towards a healthier, more fulfilling perspective on life, rather than that perfectionism trap that always says you have to do more no matter how far you've come. So from the 10 pillars of the wholehearted living that we talked about in the last section, these are this is kind of the spectrum of each of these. So for number one, you have the authenticity versus fear of what other people think spectrum. Then number two, you have on one hand, self-compassion versus the perfectionism spectrum. Number three, you have resilience versus the way we numb. So our numbing and our victim mentality. Then number four, you have gratitude and joy on one hand versus a scarcity mindset on the other hand. Number five, you have this intuition and this faith, you know, that things will work out versus the control and the need for certainty. So just having to control everything about our life. Number six, on one hand, you have free creativity, you have expression, and then the other hand, you have the comparison game that just shuts all that down. Seven, you have play and rest versus our identity really being tied up in busyness and exhaustion and our achievement, which is actually one of the ways we numb to our pain. And then eight, you have peace on one hand versus that lifestyle of anxiety. Number nine, purpose and meaningful work versus self-doubt and all the supposed to's that are placed on ourselves by our culture and just the people around us. And the number 10, you have joy, laughter, song, and dance on one hand versus like separating ourselves by trying to be cool all the time or always in control. 
And on a side note, I wanted to actually point out how much crossover there is with the definition that we talked about in episode one that incorporates those four fundamental values of freedom, peace, joy, and love. So if you look at that list, you actually can notice the similarities with living the wholehearted life that Brene lays out here as well. So in Brene's research, she actually expected to find unique strategies for each of these shields or protective mechanisms that we have, but it actually all came down to one thing. She found there was one thing that actually helps us get through these protective mechanisms that we have. And that came down to the belief that I am enough. So regardless of what other people think or say about me, I'm enough. Regardless of my failures, my mistakes, my weaknesses, I am enough. Regardless of my shame and uncertainty, I am enough. Regardless of what happened or what will happen in my life, I am enough. Regardless of what I achieve or don't achieve, I am enough. Regardless of my job, my career, how much money I make, I am enough. This is incredibly powerful. This principle is incredibly powerful. Like just imagine for a second, if every single person that you saw walking around, including yourself, really and truly believed that they were enough and they didn't have to prove it to anybody, not to their parents, their bosses, their spouses, their neighbors, friends, or especially even to themselves. So I want to ask you, in what areas do you feel like you are not enough where you don't measure up? You always have to do more. In what areas does shame actually haunt the back of your thoughts? So now's the time for me actually to be vulnerable. The biggest one for me is probably the feeling like I always need to be better as a father. So there's always this tape that's playing in the back of my head that, you know, I should have been more present with my son or, you know, instead of getting frustrated or annoyed at him, I should have seen that all he wants is, you know, to have his daddy's attention. And I would say this is my biggest challenge or where that shame tape plays the area that I put myself down the most in. So what about for you? What areas do you feel like you're not enough in? Now, Brene says, believing we are enough is the way out of shame. It gives us permission to take off our masks and embrace worthiness. Essentially, I am enough. Have boundaries, which is essentially just respecting yourself enough to be able to say, I've had enough. And engagement, being able to show up, be real, letting yourself being seen versus just the disengagement that we see in our culture and our society. So there's three main shields that we put up to protect ourselves from having to be vulnerable. The first one is what she called foreboding joy. So this is when we find ourselves in these moments of just incredible joy. So for instance, you know, when I had, you know, just had our baby girl, you know, less than a week ago, it's this incredible moment of joy. But what your brain can sometimes do is it starts playing these things that What if the worst case scenario happens? You know, what if something were to happen or we get in a car accident on the way home from the hospital or something? Just out of the blue, these weird thoughts start coming in and you actually have this dread that something will go wrong at any minute or the waiting for the other shoe to drop kind of thing. So we cut ourselves off from fully feeling that joy in the moment because ultimately we have this fear of being vulnerable. And she has this excellent quote that really sums up this idea. She says, it's easier to live disappointed than it is to feel disappointed. So it feels more vulnerable to dip in and out of disappointment 
than to just set up camp there. You sacrifice your joy, but you suffer less pain. So if you always live disappointed or you always kind of have low expectations or expect the worst, yeah, it's more comfortable and it's actually harder to like, you know, really feel the disappointment when it comes, when we have different expectations, but we also sacrifice the joy that we have in life. And so the antidote actually for this foreboding joy is really the practice of gratitude. And we're going to go into this a lot more in depth in the next two episodes, where we're going to talk about the book of the how of happiness, which is arguably provides some of the most scientifically researched and validated tools to actually make us happier. So expressing gratitude is one of those scientifically validated tools. So she has a quote about gratitude that says, practicing gratitude is how we acknowledge that there's enough and that we're enough. We risk missing out on joy when we get too busy chasing down the extraordinary. So when we're always looking for the extraordinary moments, then we actually miss out the joy that we have in every single moment. Now, the second shield is the shield of perfectionism, and this is probably the biggest challenge for me. So that's believing that doing everything perfectly means that you'll never feel shame. She says that perfectionism is more about perception than the internal motivation we have, and there's no way to control perception, no matter how much time and energy we spend trying. But a lot of times we put in a lot of time and energy to try to be perfect. Another thing she says is to claim the truth about who we are, where we come from, what we believe, and the very imperfect nature of our lives, we have to be willing to give ourselves a break and appreciate the beauty of our cracks or imperfections. And again, this is really hard for me. So the antidote for perfectionism is to actually practice self-compassion. So Dr. Kristen Neff is probably the researcher who's at the forefront of the practice of self-compassion. And I would highly recommend checking out her book, Self-Compassion, Stop Beating Yourself Up and Leaves Insecurity Behind. And she has a really great website called selfcompassion.org. And there's a number of tools on there to actually help develop compassion for yourself. So self-compassion fundamentally has three elements in there. There's an element of mindfulness. Again, first we have to be aware Uh, That self-awareness comes into play again. So we start with being aware of what we're feeling and not actually over-identifying with it. So we observe what we're feeling, we notice it, we let it go, but we don't allow that to control us or define us. And the second aspect of self-compassion is self-kindness. So this is actually a really weird concept for a lot of us because it feels like we're letting ourselves off the hook. Interestingly enough, we're totally fine with being our own worst enemy. And most of us have probably beaten ourselves up internally our whole lives. And we're like, that's just normal. That's the way things are. But she talks about what if we were to actually talk to ourselves as if a good friend was talking to us or a good coach? How would that be different? For instance, if we heard somebody talking to a good friend of ours the way that we talk to ourselves, we would be really angry and frustrated and basically say, you have no right to talk to them like that. But we do it to ourselves all the time. So there's a point in college where I actually realized that I'd been criticizing myself my whole life. And I was like, I'm the only person that's around myself 24-7. I might as well be my own best encourager. I might as well be compassionate with myself and go, hey, you're doing a good job. Like it might not be the perfect job, but it's good enough. You know, I am enough. It's that is that concept. And so this is a really powerful thing for me. And it's still still an area that I you know want to work on and grow on. 
um, and avoid hopefully the perfectionist trap in that. But the third aspect of self-kindness is actually a common humanity. So you recognize that suffering and feelings of personal inadequacy are a part of the shared human experience. So we all feel like we're inadequate in some way and at some point in our lives and we all suffer. So you can actually expand it out and say, essentially normalize your experience. Like it's okay to be tired. You know, for me, maybe it's okay to snap at, you know, my son, not that I'm letting myself off the hook, but you're really tired. You're not getting sleep because you have a new baby and it's okay. You know, you'll, you'll be all right. You know, again, like that good friend is talking to me. So she says, we either own our stories, even the messy ones, or we stand outside of them, denying our vulnerabilities and imperfections, orphaning the parts of us that don't fit in with who or what we think we're supposed to be, and hustling for other people's approval of our worthiness. So perfectionism is exhausting because hustling is exhausting. It's a never-ending performance. Now, the third strategy or shield that we use to protect ourselves from vulnerability is numbing. So this is essentially when we feel pain or discomfort or hard emotions, we use a variety of different things depending on the individual to numb that pain. So this is whatever basically deadens the discomfort and pain. So a lot of times, you know, we think on one hand, that's the addiction side of the spectrum, which it is, but it can also be the Starbucks coffee in the morning. Or it can be the glass of wine or the multiple glasses of wine or the bottle of wine at night. You know, for some people, it might be sugars and sweets or fantasy football, prescription pills, you know, anything that we use to take the edge off the pain that we feel. And one of the most universal numbing strategies actually is being crazy busy. So we use work to just numb what's going on in our relationships or other parts of our life. So the unfortunate thing, though, is we can't selectively numb emotion. Brene says, if we numb the dark, we also numb the light. So we, we numb our love, our joy, our belonging, our creativity, our empathy. And the most powerful need for numbing seems to come from a combination of three different sources, shame, anxiety, and disconnection. So when it comes to managing anxiety, there's two different camps that people fall into. The first group, handles anxiety by finding ways to manage, try to soothe the anxiety. Well, the second group defines the problem as changing the behaviors that actually lead to anxiety. Now, which group do you think handles it better? At a fundamental level, it all comes back down to the fact that we have to believe we are enough to be able to say enough, to say enough to our responsibilities, to the things that we put on our plate to numb our experience. Now, a really great question to ask yourself to just help become more aware of the numbing behaviors you may have is, are my choices comforting and nourishing my spirit, or are they temporary reprieves from vulnerability and the difficult emotions that are ultimately diminishing my spirit? Essentially, do they leave you empty and looking for more? Great question to really get an idea of whether it's a numbing behavior. Not an easy question to ask, but one that really gets down to the heart of the matter. So we counteract these three shields of foreboding joy, perfectionism, and numbing that we use to hide our vulnerability with gratitude, self-compassion, and then actually being aware of our feelings and our numbing behaviors and leaning into the discomfort of those hard emotions. Now let's take this conversation about shame and vulnerability up to a more structural and organizational level. So remember in episodes 13 and 14, where we talked about the ability to hold crucial conversations when the stakes are high, there are differing opinions, and emotions are running hot. 
And remember how if you find yourself stuck anywhere in your life, the authors of that book said you can probably trace it back to a crucial conversation that you're either not having or you're not having well. Essentially, the ability of being able to hold these conversations well is the key that has the potential to unlock the cultures of shame and disengagement that we face in our groups and organizations. Ultimately, whether the foundational cultures of our organizations are rooted and governed in shame and punishment, in contrast with openness, vulnerability, the celebration of mistakes that's actually necessary for innovation and growth to occur, dictates everything about the company. That culture of either shame or vulnerability dictates everything. Now, Dr. Brown lays out 10 questions that help give a really good indication of whether an organization, a group, or even a family structure is based in shame or in vulnerability. Now, use these questions to think about the company that you either work for or that you manage. Where does it fall on this shame vulnerability spectrum? So question number one, what behaviors in your structure organization are rewarded or punished? Number two, where and how are people actually spending their resources? So their time, their money, attention. Number three, what rules and expectations are followed, enforced, or ignored? Number four, do people feel safe and supported talking about how they feel and asking for what they need? Number five, what are the sacred cows? Who's most likely to tip them over and who stands those cows back up? Number six, what stories have actually become legend and what values do they convey? Number seven, what happens when someone fails, disappoints, or makes a mistake? Number eight, how is vulnerability, so uncertainty, risk, and emotional exposure, perceived? Number nine, how prevalent are shame and blame and how are they showing up? And number 10, what's the collective tolerance for discomfort? So is the discomfort of learning, trying new things, giving and receiving feedback normalized, or is there a high premium put on comfort, and how does that look? So she says, and this is something that we've all seen, that disengagement is one of the largest problems in our society, in our companies, in our schools, our families. At the center of disengagement is actually fear and shame around being vulnerable, authentic, maybe even creative. And shame can only rise so far in any system before people start to disengage to protect themselves. So remember to go to silence or violence. And when we're disengaged, we don't show up, we don't contribute, and we stop caring. So she provides the four best strategies that we can cut the insidious poison of shame off at the roots in our organizations. Number one, it's crucial to have leaders who are actually willing to dare greatly themselves and put themselves out there to facilitate these honest conversations about shame and cultivate shame-resilient cultures. Number two, make a conscientious effort to notice where shame might actually be functioning in the organization, so in the interactions among coworkers and leadership styles and rewards and punishment. Number three, normalize discomfort. So what are the common struggles that pretty much any employee or in a certain position would face? And then how have other people dealt with them? So you want to actually create a culture that says it's okay to struggle. It's okay not to be perfect. It's okay to make mistakes. It's okay to be creative and innovative. It's okay to share honest opinions and feedback and even celebrate those things. Brene says the simple and honest process of letting people know that discomfort is normal It's going to happen, why it happens, and why it's important actually reduces anxiety, fear, and shame. Periods of discomfort can become an expectation and a norm. 
And then number four, training all employees on the difference between shame and guilt and teaching them how to give and receive constructive feedback that fosters growth and engagement. She provides an excellent checklist that you can actually find in printable form on her website at www.brenebrown.com to ensure that when you're providing feedback, you're keeping the positive, constructive purpose of effective feedback at the forefront of the conversation. So again, this is reminiscent of the start with heart or lead with intention in that crucial conversation. So her feedback checklist, which allows you to know when you're ready to give feedback, number one. I'm ready to sit next to you rather than across from you. Essentially, we're on the same team rather than being on opposite teams. Number two, I'm willing to put the problem in front of us rather than between us or sliding it towards you. Number three, I'm ready to listen, ask questions, and accept that I may not fully understand the issue. This is the encouraging testing portion of the state your path in crucial conversations. Now, number four, I want to acknowledge what you do well instead of picking apart your mistakes. So a strengths focused instead of a weakness focused. Number five, I recognize your strengths and how you can use them to address your challenges. And this was mentioned uh, in episode eight when we talked about the book Switch by Chip and Dan Heath. And then number six, I can hold you accountable without shaming or blaming you. Number seven, I'm willing to own my part so I can genuinely thank you for your efforts rather than criticize you for your failings. So this is avoiding those victim, villain, and helpless stories. Number eight, I can talk about how resolving these challenges will lead to your growth and opportunity. And then number nine, I can model the vulnerability and openness that I expect to see from you. Now, in this process of becoming more shame resilient, we kind of have to balance two sides of the coin. So Brene says, when we stop caring about what people think, we lose our capacity for connection. And then when we become defined by what people think, we lose our willingness to be vulnerable. So if we dismiss all of the criticism, then we lose out an important feedback. But if we subject ourselves to the hatefulness, our spirits get crushed. So it's this tightrope that shame resilience is the balance bar. And the safety net below us is one or two people in our lives who can help us reality check the criticism and the cynicism. So it's, it's crucially important, vitally important to always keep one to two or more people whose opinions you really respect and trust, keep them close, and then allow them to both give you honest feedback, even if it's uncomfortable, but then also have these people that you can lean on to counterbalance the negative effect of unfounded or really destructive criticism that's unfortunately so prevalent in our society today. So to wrap it up, Brene has this piercing, poignant manifesto written to all leaders and influencers to really help remind us to value, appreciate, and understand the people that we have the responsibility of serving. So this is the Daring Greatly Leadership Manifesto. To the CEOs and the teachers, to the principals and the managers, to the politicians, community leaders, and decision makers, we want to show up. We want to learn. We want to inspire. We are hardwired for connection, for curiosity and engagement. We crave purpose, and we have a deep desire to create and contribute. We want to take risks, embrace our vulnerabilities, and be courageous. When learning and working are dehumanized, when you no longer see us and no longer encourage our daring, or when you only see what we produce or how we perform, we disengage and turn away from the very things that the world needs from us, our talent, our ideas, and our passion. 
So what we ask is that you engage with us, show up beside us, and learn from us. Feedback is a function of respect. When you don't have honest conversations with us about our strength and our opportunities for growth, we question our contributions and your commitment. Above all else, we ask that you show up, let yourself be seen, and be courageous. Dare greatly with us. And I want to leave you with a final quote from Brene Brown. She says, true belonging only happens when we present our authentic, imperfect selves to the world. Our sense of belonging can never be greater than our level of self-acceptance. So essentially, when we can learn to accept ourselves with all of our flaws, our inadequacies and weaknesses, and truly say, I am enough, only then can we fully live our wholehearted, authentic lives. Now, in the next episodes, what we're going to do is we're going to dive deeply into the neuroscience and the research about what truly makes us happy and talk about the scientifically validated practices to help us be happier and actually stay happier as well. I hope you've been getting a lot of really great value out of these podcasts and different systems and tools that you can actually implement in your life to, again, engineer that feeling of success in every area of your life. Now, if you have been receiving value from this, it would go a long way if you would just share it with some other people that you know that could benefit from it, that could learn from it, that could change their life as well. That would be awesome for me. Don't forget to write a written review, especially on iTunes. It really, really helps the podcast get noticed and get out there. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time.